0: Section 10 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6. The General Progress of Man. Abbé de Saint-Pierre. The revolutionary speculations on the social and moral condition of man, which were the outstanding feature of the 18th century in France, and began about 1750, were the development of the intellectual movement of the 17th, which had changed the outlook of speculative thought. It was one continuous rationalistic movement. In the days of Racine and Perrault, men had been complacently conscious of the enlightenment of the age in which they were living, and as time went on, this consciousness became stronger and acuter. It is a note of the age of Voltaire. In the last years of Louis XIV, and in the years which followed, the contrast between this mental enlightenment and the dark background, the social evils and miseries of the kingdom, the gross misgovernment and oppression, began to insinuate itself into men's minds. What was the value of the achievements of science and the improvement of the arts of life if life itself could not be ameliorated? Was not some radical reconstruction possible in the social fabric corresponding to the radical reconstruction inaugurated by Descartes in the principles of science and in the methods of thought? Year by year, the obscurantism of the ruling powers became more glaring, and the most gifted thinkers, towards the middle of the century, began to concentrate their brains on the problems of social science and to turn the light of reason on the nature of man and the roots of society. They wrought with unscrupulous resolution and with far-reaching effects. With the extension of rationalism into the social domain, it came about naturally that the idea of intellectual progress was enlarged into the idea of the general progress of man. The transition was easy. If it could be proved that social evils were due neither to innate and incorrigible disabilities of the human being nor to the nature of things, but simply to ignorance and prejudices, then the improvement of his state, and ultimately the attainment of felicity, would be only a matter of illuminating ignorance and removing errors, of increasing knowledge and diffusing light. The growth of the universal human reason, a Cartesian phrase which had figured in the philosophy of Malbranche, must assure a happy destiny to humanity. Between 1690 and 1740, the conception of an indefinite progress of enlightenment had been making its way in French intellectual circles, and must often have been a topic of discussion in the salons, for instance, of Madame de Lambert, Madame de Tonson, and Madame Dupin, where Fontenelle was one of the most conspicuous guests. To the same circle belonged his friend, the Abbé de Saint-Pierre, and it is in his writings that we first find the theory widened in its compass to embrace progress towards social perfection. For his life and works, the best book is J. Drouet's monograph, L'Abbe de Saint Pierre, l'homme et l'œuvre, nineteen twelve. But on some points, Gomme's older study, eighteen fifty nine, is still worth consulting. I have used the edition of his works in twelve volumes published during his lifetime at Rotterdam, seventeen thirty three to thirty seven. End of footnote. One. He was brought up on Cartesian principles, and he idealized Descartes somewhat as Lucretius idealized Epicurus. But he had no aptitude for philosophy, and he prized physical science only as far as it directly administered to the happiness of men. He was a natural utilitarian, and perhaps no one was ever more consistent in making utility the criterion of all actions and theories. Applying this standard, he obliterated from the role of great men most of those whom common opinion places among the greatest. Alexander, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne receive short shrift from the Abbé de Saint-Pierre. Footnote. Compare Voltaire, Lettres sur les Anglais, 12, where Newton is acclaimed as the greatest man who ever lived. a He was superficial in his knowledge both of history and of science, and his conception of utility was narrow and a little vulgar. Great theoretical discoverers like Newton and Leibniz he sets in a lower rank, than ingenious persons who used their scientific skill to fashion some small convenience of life. Monuments of art, like Notre Dame, possessed little value in his eyes compared with a road, a bridge, or a canal. Like most of his distinguished contemporaries, he was a deist. On his deathbed he received the usual rites of the church in the presence of his household, and then told the priest that he did not believe a word of all that. His real views are transparent in some of his works through the conventional disguises in which prudent writers of the time were wont to wrap their assaults on orthodoxy. To attack Mohammedanism by arguments which are equally applicable to Christianity was a device for propagating rationalism in days when it was dangerous to propagate it openly. This is what the Abbe did in his Discourse Against Mohammedanism. Again, in his physical explanation of an apparition, he remarks, To diminish our fanatical proclivities, it would be useful if the government were to establish an annual prize to be awarded by the Academy of Sciences for the best explanation by natural laws of the extraordinary effects of imagination of the prodigies related in Greek and Latin literature and of the pretended miracles told by Protestants, Schismatics and Mohammedans." The author carefully keeps on the right side of the fence. No Catholic authorities could take exception to this. But no intelligent reader could fail to see that all miracles were attacked the miracles accepted by the protestants were also believed in by the catholics he was one of the remarkable figures of his age we might almost say that he was a new type a 19th century humanitarian and pacifist in an 18th century environment he was a born reformer and he devoted his life to the construction of schemes for increasing human happiness he introduced the word bienfaisance into the currency of the french language and beneficence was in his eyes the sovereign virtue. There were few departments of public affairs in which he did not point out the deficiencies and devise ingenious plans for improvement. Most of his numerous writings are poges, schemes of reform in government, economics, finance, education, all worked out in detail and all aiming at the increase of pleasure and the diminution of pain. The abbé's nimble intelligence had a weak side which must have somewhat compromised his influence. He was so confident in the reasonableness of his projects that he always believed that if they were fairly considered, the ruling powers could not fail to adopt them in their own interests. It is the nature of a reformer to be sanguine, but the optimism of Saint-Pierre touched naivete. Thousands might have agreed with his view that the celibacy of the Catholic clergy was an unwholesome institution, but when he drew up a proposal for its abolition and imagined that the Pope, unable to resist his arguments, would immediately adopt it, They might be excused for putting him down as a crank who could hardly be taken seriously. The form in which he put forward his memorable scheme for the abolition of war exhibits the same sanguine simplicity. All his plans, Rousseau observed, showed a clear vision of what their effects would be, but he judged, like a child, of means to bring them about. But his abilities were great and his actual influence was considerable. It would have been greater if he had possessed the gift of style. He was not the first to plan a definite scheme for establishing a perpetual peace. Long ago, Emmerich Cruset had given to the world a proposal for a universal league, including not only the Christian nations of Europe, but the Turks, Persians, and Tartars, which by means of a court of arbitration sitting at Venice should ensure the settlement of all disputes by peaceful means. Footnote. Le Nouveau Ciné, Paris, 1623. It has recently been reprinted with an English translation by T. W. Balch, Philadelphia, 1909. End of footnote. The consequence of universal peace, he said, will be the arrival of, quote, that beautiful century which the ancient theologians promise after there have ruled by 6,000 years. For they say that then the world will live happily and in repose. Now it happens that that time has nearly expired, and even if it is not, it depends only on the princes to give beforehand this happiness to their peoples. Later in the century, others had ventilated similar projects in obscure publications, but the abbé does not refer to any of his predecessors. He was not blinded by the superficial brilliancy of the reign of Louis XIV to the general misery which the ambitious war policy of that sovereign brought both upon France and upon her enemies. His annales politiques are a useful correction to the siècle de Louis XIV. It was in the course of the great struggle of the Spanish succession that he turned his attention to war and came to the conclusion that it is an unnecessary evil and even an absurdity in seventeen twelve he attended the congress at utrecht in the capacity of secretary to cardinal de polignac one of the french delegates his experiences there confirmed his optimistic mind in the persuasion that perpetual peace was an aim which might readily be realized and in the following year he published the memoir which he had been preparing in two volumes to which he added a third four years later though he appears not to have known the work of cruset he did not claim originality he sheltered his proposal under an august name entitling it project of henry the great to render peace perpetual explained by the abbe de saint-pierre the reference is to the great design ascribed to henry the fourth by sully and aimed at the abasement of the power of austria a federation of the christian states of europe arranged in groups and under a sovereign diet which would regulate international affairs and arbitrate in all quarrels. Footnote. It is described in Sully's Mémoires, Book 30. St. Pierre, ignoring the fact that Sully's object was to eliminate a rival power, made it the text for his own scheme of a perpetual alliance of all the sovereigns of Europe to guarantee to one another the preservation of their states and to renounce war as a means of settling their differences he drew up the terms of such an alliance and taking the european powers one by one demonstrated that it was the plain interest of each to sign the articles once the articles were signed the golden age would begin it is not to our present purpose to comment on this plan which the author with his characteristic simplicity seriously pressed upon the attention of statesmen it is easy to criticize it in the light of subsequent history and to see that if the impossible had happened and the experiment had been tried and succeeded It might have caused more suffering than all the wars from that day to this, for it was based on a perpetuation of the political status quo in Europe. It assumed that the existing political distribution of power was perfectly satisfactory and conformable to the best interests of all the peoples concerned. It would have hindered the partition of Poland, but it would have maintained the Austrian oppression of Italians. The project also secured to the sovereigns the heritage of their authority and guarded against civil wars this assumed that the various existing constitutions were fundamentally just the realization of the scheme would have perpetuated all the evils of autocratic governments its author did not perceive that the radical evil in france was irresponsible power it needed the reign of louis cannes and the failure of attempts at reform under his successor to bring this home the abbe even thought that an increase of the despotic authority of the government was desirable provided this were accompanied by an increase in the enlightenment and virtue of its ministers in 1729 he published an abridgment of his scheme and here he looks beyond its immediate results to its value for distant posterity no one he says can imagine or foresee the advantages which such an alliance of european states will yield to europe five hundred years after its establishment now we can see the first beginnings but it is beyond the powers of the human mind to discern its infinite effects in the future It may produce results more precious than anything hitherto experienced by man. He supports his argument by observing that our primitive ancestors could not foresee the improvements which the course of ages would bring in their rudimentary arrangements for securing social order. 3. It is characteristic that the Abbé de Saint-Pierre's ideas about progress were a by-product of his particular schemes. In 1773, he published a Project to Perfect the Government of States, and here he sketched his view of the progressive course of civilization. The old legend of the golden age, when men were perfectly happy, succeeded by the ages of silver, bronze, and iron, exactly reverses the truth of history. The age of iron came first, the infancy of society, when men were poor and ignorant of the arts. It is the present condition of the savages of Africa and America. The age of bronze ensued, in which there was more security, better laws, And the invention of the most necessary arts began there followed the age of silver and europe has not yet emerged from it our reason has indeed reached the point of considering how war may be abolished and is thus approaching the golden age of the future but the art of government and the general regulation of society notwithstanding all the improvements of the past is still in its infancy yet all that is needed is a short series of wise reigns in our european states to reach the age of gold or, in other words, a paradise on earth. A few wise reigns. The abbe shared the illusion of many that government is omnipotent and can bestow happiness on men. The imperfections of governments were, he was convinced, chiefly due to the fact that hitherto the ablest intellects had not been dedicated to the study of the science of governing. The most essential part of his project was the formation of a political academy which should do for politics what the Academy of Sciences did for the study of nature, and should act as an advisory body to ministers of state on all questions of the public welfare. If this proposal and some others were adopted, he believed that the Golden Age would not long be delayed. These observations, hardly more than obiter dicta, show that St. Pierre's general view of the world was molded by a conception of civilization progressing towards a goal of human happiness. In 1737, he published a special work to explain this conception, the Observations on the Continuous Progress of Universal Reason. He recurs to the comparison of the life of collective humanity to that of an individual and, like Fontenelle and Terrasson, accentuates the point where the analogy fails. We may regard our race as composed of all the nations that have been and will be and assigned to it different ages for instance when the race is ten thousand years old a century will be what a single year is in the life of a centenarian but there is this prodigious difference the mortal man grows old and loses his reason and happiness through the enfeeblement of his bodily machine whereas the human race by the perpetual and infinite succession of generations Will find itself at the end of ten thousand years more capable of growing in wisdom and happiness than it was at the end of four thousand at present the race is apparently not more than seven or eight thousand years old and is only in the infancy of human reason compared with what it will be five or six thousand years hence and when that stage is reached it will only have entered on what we may call its first youth when we consider what it will be when it is a hundred thousand years older still continually growing in reason and wisdom here we have for the first time, expressed in definite terms, the vista of an immensely long progressive life in front of humanity. Civilization is only in its infancy. Bacon, like Pascal, had conceived it to be in its old age. Fontenelle and Perrault seemed to have regarded it as in its virility. They set no term to its duration, but they did not dwell on future prospects. The Abbe was the first to fix his eye on the remote destinies of the race and name immense periods of time. It did not occur to him to consider that our destinies are bound up with those of the solar system and that it is useless to operate with millennial periods of progress unless you are assured of a corresponding stability in the cosmic environment. As a test of the progress which reason has already made, St. Pierre asserts that a comparison of the best English and French works on morals and politics with the best works of Plato and Aristotle proves that the human race has made a sensible advance but that advance would have been infinitely greater were it not that three general obstacles retarded it and even, at some times and in some countries, caused a retrogression. These obstacles were wars, superstition, and the jealousy of rulers who feared that progress in the science of politics would be dangerous to themselves. In consequence of these impediments, it was only in the time of Baudin and Bacon that the human race began to start anew from the point which it had reached in the days of Plato and Aristotle since then the rate of progress has been accelerated and this has been due to several causes the expansion of sea commerce has produced more wealth and wealth means greater leisure and more writers and readers in the second place mathematics and physics are more studied in colleges and their tendency is to liberate us from subjection to the authority of the ancients again the foundation of scientific academies has given facilities both for communicating and for correcting new discoveries THE ART OF PRINTING PROVIDES A MEANS FOR diffusing THEM, AND FINALLY THE HABIT OF WRITING IN THE VULGAR TONGUE MAKES THEM ACCESSIBLE. THE AUTHOR MIGHT ALSO HAVE REFERRED TO THE MODERN EFFORTS TO POPULARIZE SCIENCE, IN WHICH HIS FRIEND Fontenelle HAD BEEN ONE OF THE LEADERS. HE PROCEEDS IN THIS CONNECTION TO LAY DOWN A RATHER DOUBTFUL PRINCIPLE THAT IN ANY TWO COUNTRIES THE DIFFERENCE IN ENLIGHTENMENT BETWEEN THE LOWEST CLASSES WILL CORRESPOND TO THE DIFFERENCE BETWEEN THE MOST HIGHLY EDUCATED CLASSES at present he says paris and london are the places where human wisdom has reached the most advanced stage it is certain that the ten best men of the highest class at ispahan or constantinople will be inferior in their knowledge of politics and ethics to the ten most distinguished sages of paris or london and this will be true in all classes the thirty most intelligent children of the age of fourteen at paris will be more enlightened than the thirty most intelligent children of the same age at constantinople and the same proportional difference will be true of the lowest classes of the two cities. But while the progress of speculative reason has been rapid, practical reason, the distinction is the abbés, has made little advance. In point of morals and general happiness, the world is apparently much the same as ever. Our mediocre savants know twenty times as much as Socrates and Confucius, but our most virtuous men are not more virtuous than they. The growth of science has added much to the arts and conveniences of life and to the sum of pleasures and will add more the progress in physical science is part of the progress of the universal human reason whose aim is the augmentation of our happiness but there are two other sciences which are much more important for the promotion of happiness ethics and politics and these neglected by men of genius have made little way in the course of two thousand years it is a grave misfortune that descartes and newton did not devote themselves to perfecting these sciences so incomparably more useful for mankind than those in which they made their great discoveries. They fell into a prevailing error as to the comparative values of the various domains of knowledge, an error to which we must also ascribe the fact that while academies of sciences and belles-lettres exist, there are no such institutions for politics or ethics. By these arguments he establishes to his own satisfaction that there are no irremovable obstacles to the progress of the human race towards happiness, no hindrances that could not be overcome if governments only saw eye to eye with the Abbé de St-Pierre. Superstition is already on the decline. There would be no more wars if his simple scheme for permanent peace were adopted. Let the state immediately found political and ethical academies. Let the ablest men consecrate their talents to the science of government, and in a hundred years we shall make more progress than we should make in two thousand at the rate we are moving. If these things are done, human reason will have advanced so far in two or three millenniums that the wisest men of that age will be as far superior to the wisest of today as these are to the wisest African savages. This perpetual and unlimited augmentation of reason will one day produce an increase in human happiness which would astonish us more than our own civilization would astonish the kafirs. The Abbé de Saint-Pierre was indeed terribly at ease in confronting the deepest and most complex problems which challenged the intellect of man. He had no notion of their depth and complexity, and he lightly essayed them, treating human nature as if it were an abstraction, by a method which he would doubtless have described as Cartesian. He was simply operating with the ideas which were all round him in a society saturated with Cartesianism. Supremacy of human reason, progressive enlightenment, the value of this life for its own sake, and the standard of utility. Given these ideas and the particular bias of his own mind, it required no great ingenuity to advance from the thought of the progress of science to the thought of progress in man's moral nature and his social conditions. The omnipotence of governments to mold the destinies of peoples, the possibility of the creation of enlightened governments, and the indefinite progress of enlightenment, all articles of his belief, or the terms of an argument of the sorites form, which it was a simple matter to develop in his brief treatise. But we must not do him injustice. He was a much more considerable thinker than posterity for a long time was willing to believe. It is easy to ridicule some of his proges and dismiss him as a crank who was also somewhat of a bore. The truth, however, is that many of his schemes were sound and valuable. His economic ideas, which he thought out for himself, were in advance of his time and he has even been described by a recent writer as un contemporain égaret au XVIIIe siècle. Some of his financial proposals were put into practice by Turgot, but his significance in the development of the revolutionary ideas which were to gain control in the second half of the 18th century has hardly been appreciated yet, and it was imperfectly appreciated by his contemporaries. It is easy to see why. His theories are buried in his multitudinous poges. If, instead of working out the details of endless particular reforms, he had built up general theories of government and society, economics and education, they might have had no more intrinsic value, but he would have been recognized as the precursor of the encyclopedists. For his principles are theirs. The omnipotence of government and laws to mold the morals of peoples, the subordination of all knowledge to the goddess of utility, the deification of human reason, and the doctrine of progress his crude utilitarianism led him to depreciate the study of mathematical and physical sciences notwithstanding his veneration for descartes as comparatively useless and he despised the fine arts as waste of time and toil which might be better spent he had no knowledge of natural science and he had no artistic susceptibility the philosophers of the encyclopedia did not go so far but they tended in this direction they were cold and indifferent towards speculative science and they were inclined to set higher value on artisans than on artists. In his religious ideas, the abbé differed from Voltaire and the later social philosophers in one important respect, but this very difference was a consequence of his utilitarianism. Like them, he was a deist, as we saw. He had imbibed the spirit of Bale and the doctrine of the English rationalists, which were penetrating French society during the later part of his life. His God, however, was more than the creator and organizer of the encyclopedists, He was also the Dieu Vengeur et Rémunérateur in whom Voltaire believed. But here his faith was larger than Voltaire's. For while Voltaire referred the punishments and rewards to this life, the Abbe believed in the immortality of the soul in heaven and hell. He acknowledged that immortality could not be demonstrated, that it was only probable, but he clung to it firmly and even intolerantly. It is clear from his writings that his affection for this doctrine was due to its utility, as an auxiliary to the magistrate and the tutor and also to the consideration that paradise would add to the total of human happiness but though his religion had more articles he was as determined a foe of superstition as voltaire diderot and the rest he did not go so far as they in aggressive rationalism he belonged to an older generation but his principles were the same the abbé de saint-pierre thus represents the transition from the earlier cartesianism which was occupied with purely intellectual problems, to the later thought of the 18th century, which concentrated itself on social problems. He anticipated the humanistic spirit of the encyclopedists who were to make man, in a new sense, the center of the world. He originated, or at least was the first to proclaim, the new creed of man's destinies in definite social progress. End of section 10